Welcome to The Future of Legal Gender, a short series podcast for the Feminist and Critical Law Reform Project, funded by the ESRC. In this podcast series, we explore what might happen if a state no longer certified sex or gender at birth. This episode was recorded at an academic workshop held online on the 9th of March 2022. The workshop the Future of Legal Gender and the Challenge of Prefigurative Law Reform explored key research findings and discussed the promises and challenges of prefigurative law reform projects. The workshop has since been divided into three parts. In part three, this episode, we have two papers, one by Amanda Perry Casares and the other by Davina Cooper which explore legal design and prefigurative research. So I'm really pleased to introduce um, Professor Amanda Perry-Casares. So Amanda is also a colleague of mine in uh, Kent Law School, University of Kent. Um, Amanda's research specialises in empirically grounded, theoretically informed, cross-disciplinary approaches to law. Um, so one of her major projects has been on um, the economic lives of law, and she's, she's working on a project on prefiguring the econo-legal features. But another very significant part of her research is on uh, design, which is what can design do for law. And with the support of a Levy Human Research Fellowship, she's recently completed a book, a monograph called Doing Socio-Legal Research in Design Mode, and that was the first to explore what design can do for social legal research, focusing on how design, designerly ways, mindsets that are practical, critical, imaginative, and experimental. So you see where we're going here, can, can help us think about generate potentially sort of new ways of thinking, new ways of doing things, and new ways of conducting research. Um, so, and, and part, part of the experiments Amanda's been involved in has been with num numerous socio-legal researchers, including socio-legal model-making project, the Pop-Up Museum of Legal Objects, and a project on what can graphic design reveal about law. So, with that in mind, Amanda's going to be talking today about design, designerly ways with the future of legal gender. And Amanda's pre-recorded her intervention. As, um, so we're going to play that video, but obviously she's also here live. So I'm going to hand over to Amanda now. Thanks so much. I'm really glad that I pre-recorded this because we have intermittent construction work going on next door. So uh, this should be a very good solution. Uh, so I'm going to share. Please, can you, somebody give me a thumbs up when you know that everything's working well? I'm going to press play. My name is Amanda Perry Kestris, and I'm delighted to be able to speak at this symposium for the Future of Legal Gender project. I'm going to be drawing on my work at the intersections of law and design, much of which is set out in a recent monograph called Doing Sociolegal Research in Design Mode. And my task for today is going to be to ask the question how might designerly ways be used to enhance the longer term objectives and impacts of prefigurative or anticipatory law reform projects such as FLAG? So first I need to give you an understanding of what I mean when I use the term designerly ways. It's not my term, it's from Nigel Cross. And furthermore, uh, there's a great deal of disagreement as to what might be included in the term designerly ways. So in recent decades, design-based methods or designerly ways have come to be seen as a resource that can be used by non-designers to address problems in other fields. So anything from, for example, the regeneration of neighborhoods to decisions, um, for businesses to policy making. As I said, views differ about what are the core characteristics of designerly ways, and also um, views differ as to what terminology we should use to refer to them. I'm going to give you my uh, favoured um, interpretation, and in so doing, I'm going to be building on the work in particular of innovation designer Ezio Manzini. So I would highlight three particular characteristics of design or three dimensions of design that are central to this term of designerly ways. The first one relates to mindsets. I would say that designers and designerly ways are characterized by mindsets that are simultaneously practical, that is, they emphasize the ability to make things happen. 
critical, that is, they emphasize the ability to identify what is right and what is wrong and why. And thirdly, imaginative, that is, they are able, they emphasize the ability to conjure that which is not yet or still present. So they do this simultaneously, designerly mindsets simultaneously um, address the practical, the critical and the imaginative. Secondly, I would emphasize uh, the experimental processes that are characteristic of design. So when I say experimental or I emphasize experimentation, I mean this in two ways. First of all, designerly processes tend to scientifically, or more scientifically test hypotheses, but I also mean it in the creative sense, the creative sense of following leads or being provisional. That kind of duality between the scientific and the creative, which I'm using loosely, um, is captured in this diagram, which is adapted from the double diamond, and it captures this idea of converge of divergent and convergent thinking that designers go through. So they open up, they generate all sorts of new different thoughts and possibilities, and then they close down to a particular solution or a particular conclusion or a particular point of focus. So that character that characterizes the scientific testing and also the creativity. Um, thirdly, I would emphasize strategies, the, the designerly emphasis on strategies that make ideas visible and tangible, whether, for example, in digital or material forms, texts, objects, maps, models, artifacts, spaces, and they do this to communicate with themselves internally to, to run through ideas and also to communicate with others. Here in this diagram, you can see, for example, um, a collaborative uh, model making participants gathering together individual pieces, putting them together to make something shared and then taking them away to use in other um, formats. And we'll see some examples of this. Importantly, I'm not suggesting that designerly ways are a panacea. They need to be used in or, or, or um, a comprehensive method. They need to be used in combination with other legal and other methods. And they, use, they need to be used with the same degree and dimensions of caution that you would apply to any other kind of method. So why would one work in design mode? What would be the benefits? I want to argue that working in design mode, whether as an expert designer or as a non-expert designer, can prompt and facilitate us to do three main things. The first is to make shared sense of problems, in particular by generating and testing alternative solutions. Um, I use these terms with caution because, of course, a problem is never so clearly defined and a solution is never so clearly defined, but we'll leave those as bracketed. Secondly, it can help us to generate more or differently meaningful contributions and relationships with the people that we're working with. Thirdly, it can help us to work with alternative pasts and futures, whether desirable or otherwise, to inform our present thinking and practice. And these features are especially um, relevant in relation to problem situations that are open, complex, networked and dynamic, and therefore deeply contested. So what makes the, me think that the FLAG project is amenable to designerly ways? If we look at the aims of the FLAG project, uh, they are to critically explore different ways of reforming legal gender status, to contribute to ongoing policy and political discussions while taking a longer term approach, to understand different people's hopes and worries. If we look at one of the major outcomes of the project, the legislative principles, we can see that it's intended to be a guide to principles and choices raised by future speculative reform, to stimulate debate about how it might work as a progressive legal measure and as part of a slow reform process. So I would argue that these quotes, these extracts that I've taken all suggest that it is a practical, critical, imaginative project and it's experimental, both in the scientific and in the creative sense. It's concerned with pasts, presents and futures and it addresses an open, complex, networked, dynamic, and therefore contested situation. So the next thing I want to ask is, what can we learn from existing experience in other fields? And here we can look to three fields in particular, uh, the field of hate crime, uh, post-conflict Cyprus, and sustainable development initiatives at the United Nations Development Programme. And I'll take each of these in turn. So thinking about the insights from hate crime, first of all, I want to highlight the strategy of mapping, the processes and strategies that go into mapping. Um, and I'm gonna to introduce to you two projects that were both attempting to test, adapt, or promote uh, the use of an internationally recognized concept that is hate crime uh, in order to address targeted violence in different countries around the world. 
The first project that I want to highlight to you that focuses on hate crime was a policy um, initiated project. It was led by SEGI, which is, stands for a Jewish contribution to an inclusive Europe. It's a non-governmental organization. And it was funded by governments across Europe and intergovernmental organizations as well. It focused on six European countries, Greece, Hungary, Ireland, Italy, Spain, and the UK, where hate crime is an established concept. And the aim was to use um, participatory workshops to surface the actual and potential systems for reporting and report recording hate crime in each of the countries. The themes that I want to identify here that are distinctive about this event were that the participants were extremely diverse, as were their perspectives. But the, the idea of hate crime, the concept of hate crime was well established. Um, and there was an effort to kind of embed and enhance the use of that term um, as a policy um, tool in each context. So here, the important point from our perspective is that these they had participatory workshops which centered on um, these consensus building activities. And this is where the designerly ways were used. These activities were used to prompt and facilitate these diverse and often extremely divergent distrustful um, uh participants so for example um activists to police officers that usually would be accusing each other of being the uh, the party that's responsible for things not working well so it was asking them to encouraging them to engage with each other as expert critical friends to see and experience things from each other's point of view to share information openly to generate shared understandings and to consider how they might actually help each other in the future Designerly ways were used to nurture a sense of structured freedom, a kind of a focus, but openness, a coherence, but also a, um, a celebration and nurturing a, a recognition of all the diversity in the room. The central activity was model making or prototyping. Uh, here um, you can see on the left hand side, there's a sticky wall. It's like a piece of cloth stuck up on a wall. Uh, with adhe that's adhesive, so you can stick each of these uh, lo-fi items on it, these pieces of card and string. And what they're doing here is they've co-plotted facts. So for example, what data is captured or not captured about hate crime at any given moment. They've also um, plotted expert perception. So for example, in their opinion, what is the strength of the relationship between each of the components within on the board, each of the institutions? Uh, on the board? Are they good relationships, green? Are they poor relationships, red, or somewhere in the middle, amber? During these participatory activities, they work together to attach, to move, to remove these labeled cards and colored string in a physical process of negotiation and debate that went across their professional, social, and cultural divides. Note there's also a prefigurative dimension here because this gathering of these individuals and institutions um, was an act of kind of acting as if there were a system um, which, which would not normally have been um, acknowledged outside of that room or before that event. Importantly, the participant feedback about this event was positive um, and detailed. So for example, one um, participant said, it's useful to see and compare uh, people's perceptions. Another said it's interesting to look at another person in the eye and admit the relationship could be improved. It's quite rewarding because even though we agreed, we also had discrepancies. The most positive thing is that it reflects many elements. So it was important that this, this uh, final image captured the differences and the similarities in their perspectives. They also reported meaningful change uh, in new relationships, new initiatives, new meetings that were going to happen as a consequence of these activities. So the second example of a hate crime project that I wanted to mention was an academic initiated project, which was um, led by Joanna Perry, Mosson Allen Batts, Melissa Sunino, and myself under the auspices or with SEGI again. Uh, we called it Facing Facts India. Um, so this project was focusing on use, using designerly ways to support Indian activists to engage with and through the hate crime concept. The themes that I want to emphasize here that distinguish it from the European one were that here the participants were relatively homogenous. They were all hate crime activists, anti-hate crime activists, and their perspectives were quite similar. But what was different here was that the hate crime concept was new. So it was an experimental concept for in the Indian context. And also that the Indian context for hate crime is extremely fragile and very dangerous under the Modi regime. So people arrived with apprehension at this session. And fear and loneliness were very much a theme. So the project itself centered on the design and delivery of an online training course for activists 
who were working, working on targeted violence. And the online environment included a lot of interactive multimedia content that was created specifically for it. There was policy and scholarly literature. There were weekly live seminars, and then there was also some moderated asynchronous discussion. So we tried to create a sense of community um, online. Obviously, it was supposed to happen in person, but pandemic. Um, so the aim here was to prompt and facilitate experimentation with the concept of hate crime, including acting as if it were already in circulation in India, which it's not, and also to explore how designly ways might support such experimentation, especially also by generating meaningful relations among activists and tools that they could use into the future. So the whole process culminated in this exercise, the here to there exercise, um, which you can see on the screen. So in this exercise, um, participants were in individually and collaboratively um, reflecting, practically, critically, imaginatively, on where we are, on where we should be, or where we'd like to be, and how we might get from here to there. In the um, slides you can see on the left hand side is a screenshot from the event itself there's the participants whose identity has been obscured and us as the four trainers they're working live on the document itself it's a table uh, the columns read here to there and we've invited them to fill in first the here then the there and finally the to section they're working on it at the time through a google doc and commenting on each other's suggestive <coughs> excuse me um, as we as we went, they were commenting. On the right hand side, you can see a kind of a designed, I mean, very loosely speaking, document in which we collated all of their responses and their comments to each other into a bigger document of recommendations coming out of the group. And we added also some comments and some suggestions about how they might go forward. Participants again gave specific positive feedback about how it was useful to them. They said it helped me a lot in realizing that we can just critique whatever laws that exist right now, or we can just give very broad ideas as to what has to be done, but how it is to be done is where it becomes difficult. I need to see, oh, sneeze again, sorry. Um, so you need to start somewhere. And it helped me a lot uh, to, thinking about what will be the practical solution not just writing we need laws another person said this was where i was able to see the place where i'm coming from in relation to others locating their knowledge and their experience and seeing how hate crime as a concept would look like when they use it in contrast to when i use it so it helped with experimenting with the concept feedback also suggested in the interviews that we've done as a follow-up um, that people that the participants want to continue to build on the relationships that they created during this um, experience and they want to do it in part using this technique, using this tool. So that was gratifying. Next, I want to move on to thinking about some insights from Cyprus, uh, the island of Cyprus. So Cyprus has been more or less divided between predominantly Greek Cypriot South and the predominantly Turkish Cypriot North since colonial times in the 1950s. And this culminated in 1974 with a military conflict and the suspension of island-wide interactions of all kinds. Some island-wide life became possible uh, since 2003 when the authorities in the north opened up some crossing points, but many people in Cyprus want more. Some of them are drawing on designerly ways in order to achieve that. So here I want to focus on prefigurative design, um, so that is using design mindsets, processes and strategies to firstly conjure future imaginaries in material and digital prototypes, Secondly, to prompt and facilitate us to act as if a desired future were already present. And thirdly, in so doing, to make that future more possible and probable. Before I go on to say more about the specifics of the Cyprus example that I want to give you, I just want to mention that there are different scales of prefigurative design. Um, and they range, we might say, from the concrete and specific to the abstract and the general. So starting at the abstract and the general, you might decide to engage as a designer in prefiguring, in prefiguring uh, different types of future, different settings, a future in which um, there's no such thing as private property, for example. A second uh, level would be scenarios. So something about a specific future state, so a particular country in which, and a particular year, um, and a particular group of people, um, and you explore the idea of there being no private property, for example. Those are sort of more abstract and more general. Then you get down to ones that are more concrete and specific. So for example, prefiguring um, a situation. So for example, a one-to-one -one representation of a future place that you can visit. So you might make a full-scale replica of a, a stage setting 
of uh, a particular place that's supposed to be in the future. And then at the most basic, we have stuff, a future artifact that you can see and you can touch. So the, the example that I'm going to give you um, from uh, Cyprus is somewhere between a scenario and a situation. So a specific future state and a one-to-one -one representation. So the project that I want to introduce to you from Cyprus is called Hands on Famagusta, and it focuses on um, this abandoned city of Famagusta in the north of the island of Cyprus. Um, abandoned because it was closed off by the Turkish military in 1974 and until very recently was entirely fenced off um, by the um, Turkish military and it was impossible for anyone to enter. It was, it's been called the ghost city as a consequence. Uh, it's now most recently been opened but only to Turkish Cypriots and Cypriots, not to Greek Cypriots. So um, the Hands-On Farm Augusta project was run by architects and it brought together architects from across the island to focus on this particular city. And their aim was to co-design specific possible futures um, for the development, the urban development of the city in practical, critical and imaginative ways. And it involved experts and non-experts from across the island. So that was important and unusual in itself. Their process had three stages. The first one was to countermap the spatial, economic, social, and cultural controversies that exist in Famagusta. And you can see on the left here, there's a, a matrix, which was uh, very large scale, A2 scale, A1 scale, massive sheets of paper that were hung up around the wall, and on which you can see a map outlining the area in question. You can see photographs documenting the present situation in the area, and then you can see proposed situations. So. In each of these columns, um, they're mapping particular features as they exist now, as an architect or an urban planner would. And with the red, they're making suggestions about how one might change things. Secondly, they imagined alternative urban planning possibilities. Um, and they mapped those possibilities, taking them from these red markings into a digital um, interactive model that they made available to members of the public. They asked members of the public to uh, respond to different kinds of scenarios and to make choices about which of them they would prefer uh, using this very elaborate digital model that I can't even describe, but you can definitely go and have a look at it. Um, so members of the public were engaging in saying which one they would prefer and why and so on. And they also um, made a physical model which eradicated all the differences between the different kinds of property and just presented Famagusta as a kind of a future blank canvas. And they brought that to different parts, different places all around the island for members of the public to come and look at Famagusta and get in touch with Famagusta in a way that they hadn't been able to for a very long time. So in this process, they've managed to create a common space, a common Famagustan space, whether on the matrix or in the digital model or in the physical model, um, in which the people with which the people of, uh, of the island can imagine and debate any kind of plans that might happen in the future. So it created this um, idea of a, a common Famagusta as a space that could be planned. And also it created the idea of a space for debate that does not really exist in the wider sense, but it created it for that particular moment. The third set of the third uh, set of examples that I want to give to you um, come from um, the UNDP Innovation Program, and here I'm going to call this instantiating. So, every year the United Nations Development Program (UNDP) runs an event called the Istanbul Innovation Days, and uh, in 2021 they had the event online. And uh, future specialist Stuart Candy was invited to design the opening event. He decided to use his ethnographic experiential futures approach. Uh, which um, combines um, ethnographic methods such as semi-structured interviews and photo elicitation with experiential methods such as prototyping. So a combination of designerly and ethnographic kinds of methods. Before the interview of uh, the event, uh, Candy interviewed five panelists in turn about their desires and their fears and their expectations of the future. And he made some aspect of each of those imaginaries visible and tangible in the form of a bespoke designed artifact. And that artifact he sent to each of the panelists and they received it um, before the event, but opened it and engaged with it for the first time as part of the panel proceedings. 
during the panel proceedings, he then discussed with them the artifact, what it meant to them, what it made them feel, and so on. The artifacts were presented in the words of UNDP as tangible representations of a range of alternative futures, intending to stretch the boundaries of thinking and generate a different type of conversation by embodying the world a generation or even a century from now, thereby creating a more real sense of the long range impact of actions we might take or not take today on what will happen tomorrow. The first artifact that I wanted to introduce to you was made for the panelist Roman Krasnarek, who is the author of How to Be a Good Ancestor. In his semi-structured interview with Candy, Krasnarek had emphasized the importance of taking a long view in political decision making by, for example, focusing on projects that expand, extend um, beyond our own lifetime. So in thinking about this and responding to this, Candy took inspiration from a, an ongoing uh, process in Japan called Future Design. Here, the Japanese government has mandated all municipalities to create a future plan for 2060. And this has involved some pretty imaginative responses. So for example, in the town of Yohaba, citizens were divided into two groups. One has been tasked uh, to consider the future from the present perspective. So they must stand in the present and look to the future and imagine what is required. The other was to consider the present from the future perspective. Now, this future group was asked to visualize being sent to the year 2060 via a time machine and to plan present day town planning policies from the perspective of those living in 2060. In order to prompt and facilitate the appropriate mindset, that is specifically to prepare them for the act of doing something out of the ordinary, participants were asked to dress in traditional Japanese costume are happy for the Yahaba Town Festival. So Candy took this idea and designed for a Krasnarik in the present at the Innovation Days in 2021, he designed an ancestors assembly robe. And that's what you can see on the left hand side of the screen. It's a robe that he he makes a fictitious robe that is as ritually worn um, by the fictitious um, participants of the ancestors assembly in future years when deliberating on the potential impacts of their decisions on future generations. And it was presented to Krasnarek's 12 year old daughter, but Krasnarek wore it himself. He just about squeezed into it uh, during the IID event. The second artifact that I wanted to highlight to you was designed for the panelist Achim Steiner, who is the administrator of the United Nations Development Programme. In his semi-structured interview, he's, he had observed that it will always be essential to have global governance platforms such as the United Nations on which we can all come together, but in the future they will have to be significantly different. So Candy took um, inspiration from the Hodasani Thanksgiving Address, which is quite frequently referenced, you may well have heard of it before. Sometimes it's referred to as the words that come before all else, but these words are recited at community gatherings and ceremonies of the six nations of the Iroquois, and um, that, 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 um, the, uh, that reside in New York State and Southeastern Canada. So the recitation is concerned with expressing thanks to Earth Mother, to the fish, to the water, to the animals, and so on. But it begins with a commitment to fellow human beings. To quote, it says, today we have gathered and we see that the cycles of life continue. We have been given the duty to live in balance and harmony with each other and all living things. So now we bring our minds together as one, as we give greetings and thanks to each other as people. Now our minds are as one. Candy created a hand calligraphed, callig calligraphed copy of the recitation and presented it as if it were the opening invocation for the General Assembly, General Assembly of the United Peoples, so not the United Nations, but the United Peoples on the 22nd of April 2070. And he, in so doing, he hoped to capture Steiner's hope that whatever replaces the United Nations will embody a deliberate decision to act differently with mutual respect and peaceful communication. So I hope those examples may have piqued your interest, your curiosity about how designerly ways might be used for a prefigurative law reform project such as FLAG. And in order to close, I thought I would present to you three activities or thought experiments that you could just turn over in your minds um, as we go forward. The first one is to do with standing in the present and casting backwards. So standing in the present and casting back to the distant past before formal certification, Try and think about what the impact of certification has been. 
what dimensions of life, what values, interactions, systems, rationalities, whatever dimensions you want to come up with, have been impacted by the introduction of certification? Have they been limited or replaced? Have they been enhanced or reused? You probably have quite a good sense of that, really, after all your interest in this field. How would you map each of those impacts? How would you place them in different sections of a page? How could you rate them as positive, negative, mixed or neutral? Maybe thinking back to the hate crime example that I gave you. How would you show the weight or the significance of each of these impacts? Again, that's probably fairly easy for you. What would you see though, if you overlaid your map with the maps that were generated by other people, especially those who seem to have generally opposing views to yours? Would you find overlap? Would you find any kind of points of connection? The second experiment that I'd like you to think about, again, involves standing in the present. This time though, you're gonna cast forward to a possible future of decertification. Again, though, through the same thought process, what dimensions of life, whatever the ones you thought were important before, do you hope or worry might be impacted by decertification? How would you make these impacts visible? How would you place them on a map? How would you map them? Again, you probably have a fairly clear idea about these sorts of things, bearing in mind your interest in this subject. But what might you see if you overlaid your map with the maps created by other people or by backcasting, the backcasting map and also the future casting map? What might you be able to reveal if you were able to place those maps on top of each other? The third example that I wanted to give involves standing in the distant future and looking back to the present in the way that Stuart Candy did with his UNDP panelists. Here, you could stand in the future and you could think, wearing your robe perhaps, what values or interests must be protected, promoted or suppressed in any deliberations around decertification, around certification, decertification, sorry. And then thinking about what future artifact could be designed to instantiate that future, those important themes from the future in the here and now to inform present deliberations. What robe equivalent could you create what plaque could you create? What declaration could you make to send back from the future to the present? For whom might you design that plaque or that robe or any other artifact? And how and where might it be deployed? And then the final question that I guess I would say in relation to each of these three exercises and all of the examples that I've given to you is, what important considerations or dimensions of human life are missing from these exercises? What do you feel has been designed out of them, shall we say? that you think is important and needs to be preserved and that therefore you would think of as a warning for those who might use designerly ways for prefigurative law reform projects. And that's the end of my comments. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Um, sorry, for some reason my camera isn't switching back on again. Um, I, we just uh, had a thought, suggestion, which is that we go straight to hear Davina's talk, which is also on prefiguration, doing prefigurative research, have the two talks back to back, and then have a discussion about both presentations and a joint conversation between Amanda and Davina. So going to move uh, straight over now, to uh, Davina again uh, on doing prefigurative pre research. So in this final part of the workshop, I want to build on Amanda's very interesting talk to explore prefigurative law reform. As a research method, we experimentally took up to consider gender categories in law, but also as a method with far wider applicability. I want to start by introducing the idea of prefiguration and how it's being discussed in, in a range of different fields. Then think about how it can be applied to a law reform project. And finally, to consider briefly what other kinds of research projects could adopt this format. Prefiguration generally is a term used to describe a certain kind of radical politics and has three elements. The activists shouldn't wait patiently for change or invest all their energies in campaigning for others to change things. Instead, the injunction is to embody and practice the change you wish to see, to live the ends you seek. 
Um, so it's very much a practice-based um, approach to, to politics. The second dimension is that the ends can't be separated from the means, that the means through which change will happen will shape the society that follows. And this is often an argument against violent revolution um, that suggests good ends can't justify destructive means. If you have a violent, a violent revolution or violent politics, you aren't going to achieve um, a good peaceful outcome. And the third way is very much linked to what Amanda was saying, and that's prefiguration as of acting as if things were otherwise. In Chiara de Cesare's words, the anticipatory representation of a future and better society. Prefiguration is usually associated with grassroots activism, such as protest camps, which engage in new deliberative or democratic forms. It's also been associated for some decades with living gender, sexuality, parenthood, um, and other social relations more progressively, inventing and trying out um, more radical ways of living. Our project, by contrast, was part of a move to extend the reach of prefigurative practice to institutional actions such as lawmaking. And this is something I've been working on for a while, um, particularly in relation to the state, um, thinking about what state bodies can do, um, local council in particular, in terms of prefigurative practice, but also in the challenge of conceptually reimagining what it could be, what it could mean to be a state. So what does prefiguration offer? And I want to focus on its contributions to research, but first I'll set out some general claims. So one is that embodying or practicing sought after changes can stimulate desire and interest in them. Miguel Abensor talks about utopia's contribution to the education of desire, and this fits well with prefiguration. Rehearsing change, experimenting with other kinds of practices, such as consensus decision-making or communal living, contributes to learning and to identifying what such practices can do, and including you know, confronting and addressing their negative effects. Secondly, like utopia, prefiguration also provides a critical vantage point from which to understand what is, and that's something Amanda was talking about, in ways that denaturalize the status quo and its taken for granted features. That's an important dimension of doing prefigurative research. Um, it's not simply about imagining better worlds, but it's how starting from somewhere else, being located somewhere else, somewhere else allows us to see the present differently as we were trying to do to understand what the certification of sex currently does. But I'm not gonna explore this um, any further for reasons of time. And thirdly, prefiguration may also help to make certain kinds of change happen where acting as if things were otherwise helps to accomplish them. Treating power and what's possible as more uncertain and plastic than some left perspectives tend to, prefiguration can involve taking up forms of power that other critical perspectives would write off as impossible. Um, for instance, a local council that acts as if they were an international state body that can make foreign policy by boycotting Israel. And this is something I'm, D.D. Herman and I wrote about a few years ago. So that kind of practice by a local council may get shot down, including by the courts. But the underlying claim is that democratic or emancipatory uses of power both get exercised, but also get forged in the process, and that power isn't a fixed quantum. Prefiguration, of course, also has drawbacks and limits, and those are important to think about. Acting as if things were otherwise can mask or withdraw a more critical attention from how things currently seem. And this was a criticism that was made of decertification by some people. From a different perspective, this is also a left critique of liberalism for its tendency to treat state bodies or human rights or democracy as if they resembled articulated normative ideals. So there is um, a problem of um, acting as if things were otherwise, if one loses the critical sense of how things also seem to be. Prefigurative politics can overstate the plasticity and indeterminacy of power and neg neglect structural constraints or path dependency. If it focuses only on grassroots practices and on inventive ways of doing things, a prefigurative orientation can disregard important institutions where change doesn't occur through outsiders acting prefiguratively. And it has a complex relationship to time as Amanda was exploring. Some versions of prefiguration suggest that it involves embodying the future in the present. 
And this can suggest the future is a place where our political desires and ends live, and one we can retrieve and enact today. And I'll come back to that. Prefiguration then isn't an answer to progressive practice, but it is a useful political orientation to complement others. How though can an academic law reform project engage in prefiguration? And I want to consider three ways that were central to our, our research. Firstly, and this has been a theme throughout the day, acting as if a radical proposal was on the law reform table as a viable option. When we started our research, decertification wasn't a proposal being discussed, particularly as a viable law reform option. Instead, the focus was on incremental reform and revision, for instance, to the Gender Recognition Act, so people could officially move between two fixed sex categories more easily. And as we, and we've talked about already today, we wanted to explore a proposal to dismantle the current system rather than incorporate people within it. But our aim wasn't to advocate for decertification, as I think Liz said, but to treat it as a proposal worth paying attention to. In part because it expressed a direction of travel already underway. In part because it seemed to capture, but also important ways failed to capture a more radical gender abolitionist program. Acting as if decertification was on the law reform table, though, allowed us to interview people and run focus groups that treated decertification as a real proposal that we could collectively attend to. This helped us flesh out what decertification could mean, so that since there wasn't an off-the-peg version we could simply take up. It also generated detailed material of what people thought a speculative reform might do and whether it was a good idea. And in different ways, participants we spoke with stressed the importance and challenge of timing. And Amanda made some similar points. Was decertification a proposal for now or for the future? If for now, questions of viability seem central. If for the future, how much can one know about the legal and social context of the time ahead, given all the things that can and will change? And the civil service lawyer we spoke with, talking about their own work, captures this point well. And they say... One of the things is that you try and get people to imagine how things could be, but then they tend to think that the thing that you're describing is the exact same in every other respect. But actually, because as you said, it's quite speculative and doesn't exist, like lots of other things would need to change alongside it for it to really work. But people tend to, and understandably, they put it in the context of today and they put all the paraphernalia around it, which is very much based on what they already know. I think looking back on the project and looking back on the last four years, what we ended up doing was adopting an accordion-like approach to time of moving in and out um, in different directions. So we worked both back from an imagined future of decertification to imagine what might need to be in place for its successful progressive development, to avoid it being a, a neoliberal exercise in state withdrawal. And we also worked from the present going forward, scrutinizing the current legal landscape to identify what existing legal provisions would be affected. So we worked in both ways, but decertification also kind of stretched us out. If you think of the accordion stretching out, extending time, and then pulling us back to the now with all its anxieties, ways of thinking and practical dilemmas. So in the sense of the stretching, the future becomes marked as the unknown, as something ahead and, and something one can't reach. But then it kind of collapses back into the present, where the future, in that kind of more condensed way, holds desire and hope um, as something that can be rehearsed and anticipated and piloted. And this stretching, simultaneously stretching and compressing of time, is probably inherent to law reform more generally but it becomes especially marked with prefigurative projects which explicitly stretch towards and seek to embody, at least as a kind of fiction, a different future. The second way that the project um, sought to be prefigurative was acting as if do-it-yourself law reform is possible. So our project involved a kind of do-it-yourself law writing, and here we hope to build on several other progressive and critical academic simulations where legal processes are reenacted by unauthorized act actors, but with revisions. And the Feminist Judgments Project is one well-known example of this, but others also exist, taking up and reinventing constitutions, contracts, environmental law, and so on. 
Undertaken as an academic project, there's a question about whether this can count as do-it-yourself. Many progressive legal projects lean on their academic expertise. But while it's perhaps controversial and it's something we can talk about later, I think the idea of do-it-yourself do can be helpful here. It suggests that roles are being assumed which aren't defined by external norms of authority, or at least aren't entirely captured by externally recognized authority with all its restraints and normative expectations. So how we behave exceeds the authority that we might have. The participants are using skills and knowledge they have access to, but again, not in ways that are fully limited by conventional notions of expertise. That more than conventional networks are being drawn on. And that there's a kind of tinkering with the structure to see how it works. But is do-it-yourself law reform possible? If it was a matter of making law, this would depend on others recognizing and adopting the law perhaps. But do-it-yourself law reform proposals have lower thresholds since their possibility depends on constructing a proposal, not on bringing it to the, into force. At the same time, proposals can act and they can be used for different ends. And some people said this happened with our proposal, that it was being used by critics to oppose the liberalizing of gender transitioning procedures. Do-it-yourself law reform peels back the entry costs for proposing or writing law and for taking up others' proposals to do stuff, since claims of unauthorization don't work in quite the same way. And so there's a valuable democratic quality to this, but it can also create um, a rocky research environment, as Aliado um, sort of raised and Liz was talking about earlier on. Projects can also prefigure how law reform is done to explore more progressive ways of developing law. This idea also emerges from Roderick MacDonald and Hoy Kong's work on law commissions and the notion that many bodies are engaged in law reform work. For them, they, they cite the synagogue, trade union, neighborhood and family. A more democratically expansive notion of lawmaking comes into play once a legally pluralist understanding of law is also drawn on. If law isn't just state law, then the bodies influentially proposing new laws or introducing them are going to be restricted to state bodies. But beyond this, what does developing law in prefigurative ways entail? And Amanda has discussed some of this, ideas of being more horizontal and participative, being undertaken by a wide array of bodies in ways that are care, caring, respectful and enabling, especially in relation to socially subordinated subjects. But what about proposals that sit within highly contentious and polarized debates? This was a challenge we faced as we heard from people with contrasting positions who not only dis disagreed on what change should look like, but also on the meaning of key terms, particularly of sex, gender, and identity. The method that we used enabled this disagreement in treating decertification as a law reform proposal as the starting point, not the conclusion of our research. The certification was less a place we were trying to reach than a jumping off point to explore the work done by legal sex and gender categories and how this might change. Starting with a proposal inverts the conventional socio-legal method, which typically involves outside participants intensively while researching and identifying the problem to be addressed, but can end up being less participative when it comes to the recommended change, as this falls at the end of the process and sits as a solution anchored in how the identified problem has already been framed. Starting on the other hand with a solution provoked many people to ask what was the problem and identifying the problem in all its multiplicity proved a very fruitful process. But this raises a second challenge for participatory law reform when proposals aren't simply about meeting the needs and interests associated with established subjectivities or identities but are also about transforming how our subjectivities are constituted. Decertification is associated for some with a freedom from state regulatory structures that will liberate subordinate and marginalized gender subjects. But it's also about how gender is produced and the socialization of children into a gendered matrix from their birth. Critical legal scholarship commonly claims that legal discourses or knowledges are productive or performative, and a similar argument is made about interests and in publics. 
that they don't precede political, legal and institutional action, but are formed through them. The productive effects of legal form surface sharply when its dismantling is invoked, as, as was very, we became very aware during this project. And while it's impossible to know what decertification will do because it depends on many factors, which will also change over time. There's also a difficult question here about how does a proposal to change us all as subjects interface the democratic aspirations of prefigurative practice? And that's a dilemma for utopian studies as well. Um, the idea of making new, new people for a different society. How do we do that? What does it mean to do that democratically? So I want to leave that hanging and we can return to it in the discussion. But I want to end by considering the application of prefigurative methods to other topics. I focused here on our project to prefigure gender as a legal category, but as a method, it has far wider applicability in inviting people to think seriously and in detail about radical change and in developing what the radical change could entail since it doesn't come into the research fully formed. We could imagine prefigurative law reform projects that explore other kinds of abolition or dismantling of prisons, of national borders, of the military, of money, of the established church in the British context. Such projects could explore attitudes to reform, the legal policy and social challenges confronted and how they might be tackled, the lens that abolition provides to understanding the current system and the investments in it, and what reform would and should entail with all its choices, since abolition is never, never simply a withdrawal. But does this method only work for abolition or dismantling kinds of law reform proposals? Is it easier to explore a reform that takes the shape of a cutting or ending than of something being added? And this is something I've been thinking about and would be really interested to hear other people's views. Could, could this kind of method be used productively um, to explore, for instance, new, more expansive welfare programs or a lively progressive ecology agenda, or new forms of participatory democracy or international institution building. Does prefigurative law reform research need at least a well-defined question in terms of what is being removed or added, even as its investigation shows how much more amorphous such proposals inevitably are? So what kinds of proposals um, work effectively using this kind of research method? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Legal Gender podcast. To find out more, head to futureoflegalgender.kcl.ac.uk and to receive updates, follow us on Twitter at Future Gender. Mm -hmm.